Tonight we're going to have a little study, a Bible study, how to and not to confront a Christian leader. How many of you have ever heard, uh, how many of you have ever thought that you've heard a Christian leader that needs to be confronted? How many of you have ever heard um, a Christian that needs to be confronted? Um, uh, how many of you think people enjoy confrontation? How many of you here just enjoy confrontation? <laughs> no? Uh, confrontation, not uh, fomentations, confrontations. Uh, confrontation is where you, you, know, you confront somebody for something maybe that you think they're doing that's wrong. Or maybe you say, they say a word that you don't know. So you confront them and you say, what does that mean? That's kind of what you just did. You are the number one confronter tonight. Uh, did you have your hand up? Did someone raise their hand? Okay. I thought you were confronting me. Okay, good. So how to or not to confront a Christian leader. Let's pray together before we get into this interesting message. Father in heaven, thank you today for the opportunity we have to study your word. We ask a blessing um, on us as we open your blessed word. You've already blessed it. You've kept it. You've provided it. It is profitable for reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped as you would have us to be. So bless us tonight as we study. In Christ's name, amen. I might say I'm excited about tomorrow before I get started tonight. Uh, we're going to be having some guests with us that are in one of our clinical programs and several of them have made decisions to follow Christ and there's going to be a baptism tomorrow so it's going to be a high day and several of them have no church family where they are so we're going to be asking you whether or not you would like them to join this church family and until their name can be placed wherever they end up in the world so uh, exciting to see that. How to and not to confront or not to confront Christian leader. Our study of tonight will come from the book of Timothy. And Paul, in speaking of Timothy, had this to say. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So when you look at the book of Timothy, which is where we're going to look tonight, when you look in the book of 1 Timothy, you actually are looking at a manual, a church manual, that was to be used everywhere. And Paul said, read this manual everywhere. Now, it's interesting. This particular book, 1 Timothy, has caused a lot of discussion <laughs> in the Christian church, um, especially recently. Is it only for that context? Was it only for Ephesus? Or is it something that's supposed to be heard and understood and applied everywhere? And in Corinthians, Paul says, no, it's supposed to be applied everywhere. It's not just for that time and that culture or that particular point in history, but it's for all time. So that's why we look at Timothy. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 24. So turn with me there in your Bibles. 
1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 through 24. So, um, these passages are um, specifically focused on leadership to those who are leading. And let's just read the first verse 17. Let the elders who rule be uh, rule well be, count, be counted worthy of double honor. So let the elders who rule, those who stand in leadership capacities, be counted or thought worthy of double honor. So our elder tonight of the church was Tom Canamata. Is he well thought of? Do you think well of Tom? Raise your hand if you think well of Tom. If you don't think well of Tom, uh, don't raise your hand. <laughs> and so those who stand in a leadership capacity, they should be thought worthy of double honor. How do you think that Tom should receive not just honor, but a double honor? Um, he's resourceful. He helps in all manner of things. He's a servant. And if, if, if he can't fix it, it's not broken. Uh, he's, he's a very resourceful leader and, and well thought of. So that's the one phrase. And this says, um, thought worthy of double honorary. We get the idea of the word honorarium, strengthened, to pay a price, money paid. Have you ever heard the word honorarium? He gave a talk and he got an honorarium. So actually, someone that serves well should be worthy of honor, but that's actually financial honor. It includes that. So an honorarium. Sometimes when I go speak places, they'll give me an honorarium. Sometimes I take it and sometimes I don't. And sometimes I take it and give it right back because uh, it's, it's my job to speak. I speak all the time, and, and if I'm speaking for my congregation, you don't have to uh, pay me every time I get up and give me an honorarium. Um, I know you were thinking, maybe we should give him an honorarium tonight, <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> because it says next, especially those who labor, that is to work hard, feel fatigue, in word and doctrine. So there's two realms of leadership. There are those that are just uh, in a general leadership capacity, and they're worthy of double honor, and those who labor in word and doctrine. Um, do you think it's hard to study God's word? Do you think it's hard to figure out what it's saying? Does it take labor? Does it take time? Does it take effort? Okay. Um, <laughs> you just asked my wife <laughs> um, how much time that takes. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So in other words, a person that's working hard, studying the word to prepare and to teach others and to lead others, it's like an ox <laughs> who's Working and as he works, he's eating some grain. <laughs> and my wife, you know, gives me a sandwich while I'm working. Uh, or today it was a piece of pizza, and I was working on this message and putting it in um, keynote. Um, 
So two types of leaders, those who rule, double honor, those who labor in word and doctrine, even higher honor. Now, does this mean that they have to take the pay that they actually uh, should get? No, Paul did not always do this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 8 through 16, he, he actually quotes this idea that a ox should be able to graze and whatnot. But then he says, I have not used this right. I have used none of these things. So in fact, even though he could have been paid for his work in the gospel, he decided not to. Why? Why did he decide not to take money? Because, by, because he realized that if he took money, he could be criticized concerning money. And he wanted to say, look, I'm paying my own way. I actually am paying for the privilege to share the gospel with you. I just was talking to a leader out east. It actually was Elder Bob Falkenberg. And he is the president of the Southern New England Conference. And they've decided that they're going to be training, I think it was 50 bivocational pastors. Bivocational, which means they work as a pastor, but they don't get paid. They just work as a pastor bivocationally. Now, for five years, I did that before I uh, became a full-time pastor. I worked in the emergency room um, during nights, and I would work from 11 to 7 in the morning, which means I could go visiting in the afternoon and evening. So I would go out visiting from, say, about 4 until, you know, 10 o'clock, 9.30, and then I would go to work. And then every Friday night... They gave me off because I started giving my money away that I made on Sabbath because I didn't feel right about it. And so everybody knew I was giving money away. And all kinds of people were lining up at the hospital to receive money from me. And they didn't like that. So they fired me on Friday night. They said, you cannot work any more Friday nights and you can't work any Sabbaths at all. I felt very bad because I liked I was working as a nurse. I was helping people get better. And so it was something that was justifiable, right? But uh, so, um, so I paid my own way as a pastor. In many places in the world, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. That people are working and they're not being paid from even the tithe. They're just doing a labor of love. And this is what Paul did uh, because he didn't want people to be thinking, you know, you're taking advantage of us. Um, because you're taking money and different things. Any organization you work in where people are actually giving of their own time to work for you, how many think that's a noble thing? It's a very noble thing, right? Um, and this, is, this was the case here um, in, in Paul's, um, Paul's situation. He was called a tent maker, and so was Apollos. And they would work together, and they would build tents and then they were very intense as they preached and as they um, raised up congregation. One time, my grandfather, he worked during the Depression, and everybody lost all their money. And so he didn't have a job. He, as a pastor, he, they didn't have any money to pay him. Did he stop pastoring? No. He went out call portering, and he sold books. In fact, he sold enough books 
until there was enough people and then they paid him tithe again and he went back. So sometimes we're called to do things and the calling is much stronger than the pay, right? Because the calling is what the reason we work. We don't work for pay. We work because we're called. Woe is me unless I preach the gospel. If I was not paid, I still would be giving Bible studies. I still would be preaching. How about you? Are you called to God's work? And this is what Paul was trying to show. Now, in leadership, whether or not you're vocational or bivocational, whether you get paid or not, if you're in leadership, there are things that are going to happen. Notice what it says. Do not receive, that is to accept, admit, or delight in, an accusation, that is to be categorized as a criminal or as someone that's not doing things right, a criminal against in the assembly. Don't, do not receive an accusation in the assembly. Accept an elder, except from two or three witnesses. Okay, so if you want to accuse a elder, like let's say you wanted to accuse Tom Canamata. How many of you are thinking maybe we should accuse Tom? And you said, we need to accuse him. Then what you need to do is get two or three of you and publicly go before, um, well, actually what you should do is go to that person first and then take two or three others to him, or two others, and then if they don't listen, they come before the church. And then you bring these accusations before everybody. Should you... Uh, uh, there's other ways that people do things, but this public, um, how many of you notice that people, when they are saying something where they think they're anonymous, say things they normally wouldn't say? Does this ever happen? Um, and, they, and so they'll say things that they just, maybe they, they just, <laughs> they would never say if they were like in your presence. Right? They wouldn't do that. Um, I know that when I asked my wife to marry me, I did not do this over the phone. <laughs> I did not do, I did this uh, right in front of her and in public, right, because she was going to tell me no, then uh, she would tell me no. Amen? She did not tell me no. Amen? <laughs> so there's something about public and this would be a sworn testimony in public, in the assembly. So it says, if that hasn't happened, don't even receive it. Don't even listen to it. Don't even delight in it. How many think that's very good counsel? So this is, uh, this is how to and how not to confront a Christian leader. Those who are sinning, that means to err, especially morally, then rebuke, that is to admonish, convict, convince, tell a fault in the presence of all. So is there a place for public rebuking in the presence of everybody? There is, but you better, you're supposed to carry a very, follow a very careful process to get there. How many of you are following me here? So, um, and if they are a leader, that means they're leading and they're very public. So everything they do is public. So what they are doing wrong also has a greater impact. And so it's rebuking in the presence of all, in the sight of, with eyes wide open to inspect, 
to see with your own eyes. Yes, this exactly is what happened. It was wrong, etc. That the rest, that is the remaining ones, also may fear. Man, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. I want to be faithful. I don't, I don't think I would enjoy that. And this is, uh, this is the counsel that's giving. Now, what happens to those in a leadership role many times? Well, accusations come against leaders many times more than followers. I was talking to someone the other day and they said, my favorite basketball team, they fired my favorite coach. So well, why did they fire him? Well, he didn't win enough games and he lost in the playoffs, but he was a good coach. Well, he didn't win, so he got fired. And leaders sometimes just get fired uh, because they're held to a higher account in sports teams and everything else. Accusations will come against leaders. Why do you suppose this happens? Well, they either did something wrong, that can be certainly a reason for an accusation against a leader, or they did nothing wrong, but are not liked and even attacked as a result of their faithfully carrying out their work. And especially if they're talking about word and doctrine, right? Because there are rights and wrongs in the Bible. And when you <laughs> confront something that's wrong, sometimes people just don't like that. And they will attack a leader. And that's why this counsel is put in the Bible. Don't receive an accusation except for two or three witnesses and a full process. Because if that counsel was not there, then what would happen? People that are supposed to be bringing the word and the doctrine, sometimes, many times, you know, they may not even be thinking of an individual, but they're just faithfully preaching, and the person uh, thinks they're talking about them, and it rebukes them, and it's really the Holy Spirit, it's really the word of God, it's not a personal attack, but it's just a part of the ministry, but they don't like it, and they get upset, and they want to get rid of that person. I was in England uh, a few years ago, passing through, and I was downtown by Trafalgar Square. How many of you have ever been to Trafalgar Square in, in England? And there was a man there, and he was walking up and down. Now, this guy had a method of presentation that I'm not sure... I mean, it was, it, was, it was a type of presentation that would probably get you in trouble. So he walks up to a person and he would talk to them and he would say, praise the Lord, or he would say, well, what you're saying is of the devil. And he would hand them a track. Well, he came and talked to me and he said, he said uh, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I believe fully in Jesus. He goes, you're a Seventh-day Adventist? I said, yes. He goes, it's of the devil handed me a tract as to why he thought Seventh-day Adventism was of the devil. Now, naturally, this guy was not getting a lot of people that liked him because out of 10 people, maybe seven, <laughs> he said it was of the devil. So the next thing I knew, I was minding my own business in Trafalgar Square, and then I see this guy surrounded by a bunch of what were called skinheads. They had shaved their hair, and they were a very you know, militant group. <laughs> And they were screaming at the man and they were telling him they were going to hurt him, they were going to kill him. And 
And he was up there <laughs> surrounded by skinheads. And I couldn't help but be interested because he had just told me that my religion was of the devil. So I came by and a big crowd came around and there he was surrounded by the skinheads. And he's up there and he puts his, his arms out like, an, like a cross. And by the way, this happened to James White too. You might remember the story of James White when he was preaching as a Millerite pastor and they were throwing snowballs and ice balls at him and they were surrounding him as if they were going to hurt him. But this was, this, this was this pastor over there. And he stand up and he goes, who, stand, who will stand with me for the Lord Jesus Christ? Who here is a Christian? And I was like, you know, the guy just told me that my religion's of the devil. So I don't need to stand up for him because he doesn't believe I'm a Christian. And then in my heart I was like, no, I'm a Christian. What greater witness could I have to that gentleman than to go up and say, yes, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and I will die with you at the hands of the skinheads. So, <laughs> I thought, you know, and I was thinking about it, and I was kind of going like this, you know. And then I started to walk forward. I'm walking forward, and thank the Lord, right at that time, a bunch of bobbies came. These were the policemen with their billy gloves. And they came in, <laughs> and they took away my opportunity. And they came in and they rescued this man. And then they said, is there anyone else here that's a Christian? And I said, I'm a Christian. I said, you better come with us. So, and I, kept, I said to the man, as we, the, the Bobbies were extra, I said, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> anyway, so I just told you that story because sometimes people that are in the ministry get in situations where they're going to be attacked. And how many of you think that this is on the increase now that Christianity is on the decrease in society? As a matter of fact, if you even read the Bible in some places, it's called hate speech. Just reading the text of the Bible. I have some people moving from another country. This country, I won't mention their names or where they're coming from, but they're coming because of that. They can't even read the Bible publicly anymore. So they're leaving that country to come to America. So two things can be fueling an accusation of a Christian leader. They did something wrong or they did nothing wrong, but they're being attacked because they're faithfully falling out their work. Notice how uh, Ellen White, who was attacked for decades... She got attacked by people and they sent her to Australia. Then she came back and they, she got attacked back when she was here. Um, the advocates of truth expect fierce and cruel opposition from their open enemies. But this is far less dangerous than the secret doubts expressed by those who feel at liberty to question and find fault with what God's servants are doing. So you got two kinds of attacks. Your frontal attack and then the secret ones that do things kind of not in public, maybe anonymously, maybe kind of like, you know, behind the scenes. How many of you are familiar with these two approaches? I remember once I was a little boy. I was about, uh, how old are you, Xander? How old are you? How old is Xander? You can, you can. I was your age. I was seven years old. And my dad... My dad was quite a preacher. He, he was, um, 
<laughs> Much different than the dad you met when he was here in this congregation. He was very calm when he was here. He was, he was an older gentleman when he was here. But when he was young, he made me look very, very mild. He was, he was, he was, well, he was, he was, and I, I was proud of my dad. But we moved a lot. We had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different churches because uh, sometimes people did not like how direct he was. And I can remember one time these people were talking about my dad and I was hiding underneath their car. And I was about Sanders stage and I heard all the stuff they said. There was like five or six of them. And then I was underneath the car and I came out underneath the car and I said, I heard what you said. And I said it all. They all, they all fled like, you know, ah! <laughs> So there were the public ones and there were the secret ones. <laughs> all right. So these secret ones, let's, what does she say about them? These may appear to be humble men, but they are self-deceived and they deceive others. And their hearts are envy and evil surmisings. They unsettle the faith of the people and those who, in whom they should have confidence, those whom God has chosen to do his work. And when they are reproved for their course, they take it as personal abuse. I was abused. I've been abused. While professing to be doing God's work, they are in reality aiding the enemy. How many think that's an amazing statement? So you have the public ones and you have the private ones. Uh, which is better, a snake that you can see or a snake in the grass? <laughs> Maybe they're both bad, but one of you gives you a little more warning, right? I should tell you a snake story, Xander. I want Xander to Xander. If Xander's paying attention, I know everybody's paying attention. So <laughs> once, Xander, I was in this house, and I went in, and I went to the house, and there was a, right in the house, there was a big aquarium, and in the aquarium was a huge snake. And they were feeding the snake rats and stuff. It was a wonderful Bible study as we were watching the snake eat rats. And I just, I said, oh, how wonderful it is. Uh, and uh, then I went to the next house, and I was in this house, and I was giving a Bible study to this lady, and all of a sudden these cans started falling off the shelves in her, in her cupboard. And I go, what's that? She goes, oh, there's a snake in there. I was like, oh, I didn't like the snake I couldn't see. I liked the one better than I could see. Well, the next week I went back to the house where the snake was in the aquarium, and the snake was not there. I said, did the snake go to the doctor? Is he shopping? Where's the snake? And they said, we don't know. We lost the snake. And I was like, right, what do you mean you lost the snake? Well, the snake's in here somewhere, but we just don't know where he is. And I was like, you know, I was sitting on the couch giving the study, and I just kind of sat on the edge of the couch, right? I was kind of tense. I gave the Bible study, and I left. I came back the next week, Xander, and guess what I saw when I came in? There was the snake. He was back in there and they were feeding him good old, back to the good old days of feeding the snake during the Bible study. Everybody was comfortable. But then I asked the question, <laughs> where was the snake? Obvious, right, obvious question. Guess what they said? 
It was in the couch that you were sitting on last week. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so you see, Xander, we like snakes we can see better than ones we can't. Are you following me? So when leaders are called in a question, number one, don't pay attention unless there are two or three witnesses that are willing to publicly state or testify things, sworn testimony, publicly, right? After following the Matthew 18. By the way, the California Code of Civil Procedures says this, the names of all parties in a civil action must be included in the complaint. That requirement extends to real parties in intent. Anyone with a substantial interest in the subject matter or the action. The right of public access applies not only to criminal cases, but to civil proceedings. So even in the courts of the land, they almost have this same principle. You can't be anonymously saying, I just sent in my complaints. It has to be public. How many think that's pretty good? Because you're able to then face your accusers and really see the evidence. Make sense? In the Old Testament, it says, let things be a this Where did they get this idea of two or three witnesses? Old Testament, here's all the text, two or three witnesses. New Testament, same thing. We're reading the 1 Timothy 5.19 text, but there are many other texts that say the same thing. But maybe we should focus on Jesus. Was Jesus ever falsely accused? Was Jesus a leader? How many would say Jesus was a leader? And was he ever falsely accused? And is he even accused today? So maybe looking at Jesus and how he handled accusations would help us out. How many think this would be good? So he was accused. And should a leader ever defend themselves? What do you think? Well, let's see what Jesus did. Oh, man, I, I meant to put this in a build so you could see it, but that's okay. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, you have to have how many witnesses? Two or three. So he seems to understand the Bible. How do you think Jesus probably understands the Bible? There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So now here's another testimony. Who is it? John, not that the testimony I receive is from men, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a time in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So now he has his testimony, John's testimony, but now what's the next thing? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So there's another thing that you can look at in terms of testimony. That is the fruits of the leader's ministry. How many think that's a good thing to look at? Are people having positive things happen as a result of the public ministry of the person? Right? Are they winning souls? Are they bringing health? Are they bringing healing? Are they bringing hope? Right? Everybody has fruits for their ministry. Some are good fruits, some are bad fruits. But Jesus is saying, there's my testimony, there's the testimony of John, and there's the works that I'm doing. Let's keep going. And the Father himself has borne witness about me. 
Remember when Jesus was there and, uh, you know, before his baptism, and there was this voice from above that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I was like, that's testimony from above. Now there's four witnesses. Now look at the next one. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and they are they that bear witness of me. Now you have the scriptures. Is what the person doing, is, uh, is what they're doing according to the scriptures or is it not? How many think this is a good thing to look at? Um, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So he's saying, look, even though I have all these witnesses, you might receive false witnesses, right? And then he talks about Moses. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. Although that's a part of the scriptures. Look at this then. Jesus' self-defense, when there was a false accusation, consisted of what? His own testimony, which was not sufficient, but he added to it John's testimony, then the works that he was doing, then the testimony of God, and the testimony of Moses and the scriptures. How many think that's pretty powerful? Pretty powerful. So let's, uh, let's go on. Defense of the cause. Um, Jesus did not just defend himself for himself. He defended himself because he was the hope. He was, he was representing the gospel hope for the world. Right? That's why he defended himself. Others did that. Jesus did that. We looked at the example. Stephen did that. How many of you have ever read Acts 6 through 8? Where he had all these false accusations brought against him in Acts chapter 6. And what was he doing in Acts chapter 6? Stephen was doing medical missionary work. And thousands of people were getting helped. In fact, people in the community were getting helped. People from around the country were getting helped. And the Jews were very, very envious. And so what did they do? They set up false witnesses. And they said, look, he's misusing the temple. And he's doing this and he's doing that. And they had all these accusations. And then they got the Sanhedrin all together. So we're going to call in the 70 elders. We're going to call in all these people. And we're going to have them listen to this testimony of the false witnesses. And then they said, but we'll let you say a word. And he got up and defended himself. And he went through, oh man, it's a masterful defense. Masterful, chapter 6 through 8. It's what's called a covenant lawsuit. In fact, he even ends and he says, look, I see Jesus seated to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And they didn't listen to it. What did they do to him? They killed him. But that was it. They went too far, didn't they? And that's when the prophecy ended for the Jews as a nation. Because of false accusations that then were confronted. So Stephen's story is fascinating in terms of a defense. And then Paul, if you want to read another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 through 13. Paul was accused by these very people in Corinth. Remember I said they were the ones that he said, look, I'm not taking money from you. 
because you're going to accuse me because of the money. You'll, you'll get me over the money issue. You'll try and accuse me about money. So I'm going to make my own money. But people that are going to accuse you with money probably will even accuse you without money. And this is what happened with Paul. So he had to defend it all, and he defended himself in 1 Corinthians 10 through 13. Fascinating. We won't go through it. But we could, of course. But defend. And why did Paul do that? Woe is me unless I preach the gospel. It wasn't about him personally. It wasn't a personal issue. It was a corporate issue. Look, woe is me unless I tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been counseling with people all week this week. It's been very exciting. But I see always a great controversy. Whenever you're doing something right or want to do something right, the devil will come in and accuse you to yourself, bring other things against you. And so <laughs> there's been some great victories, but there's always a battle. Okay, let's go on. As we uh, additional safeguard against falsely convicting someone of a crime, this is in Jesus' day, Paul's day in the New Testament, was that the witnesses themselves were responsible for initiating the penalty. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting the person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. In other words, if you did convict something of something that was wrong, you actually had to carry out the death penalty. So much for being anonymous. You had to so believe what you were doing or be so calloused in unbelief that you actually would kill someone. Not just with your tongue behind the scenes, but actually physically. And you saw that happen, right? Where Paul... Or Saul, who turned into Paul, he went and he was throwing the stones against Stephen. Remember that? And then later he realized, man, I did something very, very wrong. The whole community joined in administering justice, attesting to the corporate character of the covenant family. Evil crime and its punishment impacted the entire fellowship. If one Israelite sinned against God, all were liable in way, one way or another, and it was in everyone's best interest to remove evil from the midst. So to bring an accusation is not a small thing, not a small thing, because it leads to serious consequences. That's why it must be done correctly, publicly, and all the things we talked about. So don't pay attention to an accusation unless there's two or three sworn witnesses that are willing not only to publicly state and testify, but also to actually carry out the judgment, even if it be the death penalty. Once the case has been correctly considered and a judgment is rendered, what do you think you should do then? Do you keep bringing it back up? No, you live by that judgment, right? Um, to continue to agitate when you follow that full due process. I mean, in America, we have a former president who says that there was unfair election. And he still says that. And is that unsettling to the country? To about 70 million people, very unsettling. And that's why, you know, 
whether you agree with him or not, the best thing would be to have a clear election and then be able to move on, right? And this is true with judgments as well. To continue to agitate is to become divisive. And that's what it says in Titus 2. Reject a divisive person after the first or second warning, knowing such a one is unstable. So you have people that will agitate. In that case, it's false doctrine. Reject a heretic. But it can be anything. If they continue to agitate and bring things up that's been fully dealt with, then you know there's a problem. Number three, there are two outcomes. Be exonerated before or convicted, rebuked before all. And let's go. We only have a couple more points. 1 Timothy 5.21. I charge you before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. In other words, not preferring one before another. Do nothing with partiality or favoritism. Do not lay hands, that is to put power upon a vacancy, on anyone hastily, quickly or soon. Nor share, be in partnership in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Some real wise counsel there, right? How many think this is wise counsel? So don't pay attention unless there's two or three witnesses. Once a gentleman's in red, live by that. Two outcomes, exonerated or convicted. Don't show favoritism in judgment. Some people, because of who they are, they get all kinds of preferential treatment. Um, other people, they just, just, just dismissed. Don't show favoritism. Don't let things go and thus partake in their sins. Um, now here's the final text. Some men's sins are clearly evident, plain before all men, that is obvious, preceding, that is to go before them, to judgment. This is the final judgment based on divine law and full process. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. This is interesting. It's saying what? There will be a final judgment when everything will come out. And so don't, don't think you're going to get away with things. Don't think you're going to get away with things with whatever you're doing or not doing. And don't think you're going to get away with actually falsely accusing people either. That comes up in the judgment, doesn't it? Don't pay attention unless there's two or three witnesses that are willing to publicly state or testify. Number two, once a judgment is rendered, live by that judgment. Number three, there's two outcomes. A person is either exonerated or convicted. Number four, don't show favoritism because of a person's position uh, and because of you know, what they... Uh, they can bring, like in James, don't favor the one who has a gold ring over someone who has no gold ring. Don't let things go and thus partake in their sins. Um, and number six, the truth will ultimately come out either here or in the hereafter. How many think this is a powerful passage? And I think that much of what we hear in the media is really gossip. It's not sworn testimony. Then we get ourselves used to listening to people that are really not bringing 
accurate things, right? And we get used to just picking up stuff. Or we might get used to accusing each other. How many of you have falsely accused someone or brought an accusation? And you know you did what was wrong. So um, these are serious things, especially as we live in the end times. Abraham Lincoln had this to say. You can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. Ultimately, the Bible says there's going to be a judgment where everybody is there. And it's found in Revelation chapter 20. Every piece of evidence is there. Everything. And then there's going to be a decision. There's going to be a decision that says, I have a place for you in heaven. You followed the right process. You uh, confessed your sins. You sent them on the judgment. Or when you accuse someone else, you followed the right process. Right? And you rebuked in the right way. And to those people, he said, I'm going to remind you of a text. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be in your place also. But then also in Revelation 20, it says in the great white throne judgment, as everything's laid out, it says of certain people, there was no place for them. No place. Why? Because either they, they either had covered a sin or they had sinned in how they had accused others or they had done something in the wrong manner. How many want to be in the group that has a place in heaven? Let's, uh, let's pray together as we close and uh, ask the Lord to bless us on this Sabbath. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for the clearness with which 1 Timothy 5 speaks. A message really meant not just for Ephesus, but for every church, not just for that time, but for every time. And give us discernment and give us wisdom um, in the real important work of having lives that are free from sin and corruption and being in a church also free from sin and corruption. Because we're human and we are not angels, as Madison once said, we need a process to follow. Help us to follow within your process that we could have the type of fellowship we need, not in doubting, not in disunity, but one of unity that comes as a result of following your pattern and your plan. May we be in that place that you've prepared for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.